This is They Create Worlds, episode 40, Sierra Online. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Welcome to part two. Once, there was a company that was in L.A. It decided they didn't like L.A. too much because of all the lead in the air. So it went to the Sierra Nevadas and thought, we'll start to make this mountain high up in the sky. Except it burned down because they supported the PC Jr. Well, cartridges before that, and then when it looked like they may finally have their way out, then they made the mistake of supporting the PC Jr. They're now in a hole, in Nevada, in the desert. They barely have a gallon of water left to trek back over the lands, back to civilization, back to a world of glory. Because obviously we are talking about Sierra rising from the ashes, bringing the king's quest back to a deserving world. That's right. Sierra is a company that had risen to pretty decent heights pretty quickly, at least as far as computer game software companies go in the early 1980s, and then fell back to earth very quickly when they embraced a cartridge market that was just on the verge of going completely soft. A company that had over 100 people, and they have 20, 30, 40, something like that. They've had to cut a huge amount of their staff. They're on the verge of bankruptcy. They're paying their lease on their building using second credit cards and just running up debt. It almost seems certain the company is going to perish. They think that perhaps the entry of IBM into that home market is going to be what saves them because they have this deal with IBM to create this game, King's Quest. The good news is... Because IBM wants it to be a showcase for their new computer, they are funding the majority of the development because there's no way Sierra at this point has the money for a really top-notch AAA game development. They're also doing the publishing under IBM's own label. So if it weren't for the fact that IBM were fronting a lot of the costs of making and publishing this game, there's a good chance they wouldn't even be able to do that. But they've got this game, they got it together, and for the time, it is technically astounding to have your little character of Sir Graham walking across the screen, coming to a tree or a bush, and actually disappearing behind it, or walking in front of it, giving this illusion of depth, of three-dimensionality to this game world, is unprecedented in any kind of adventure game. It's kind of funny because adventure gaming had actually been moving back away from images again. There had been a brief period of time where other companies were following Sierra by adding pictures to their games. Scott Adams added pictures in some of his games, for instance. There was Penguin Software that had some adventure games with graphics. But that had been come to be seen as a dead end. There was this new push towards bookware. This was the height of Infocom's popularity and commercial success. 
with all text adventures. And you had book publishers even, like Simon & Schuster, becoming interested in the text adventure as an art form. So the entire adventure game industry that had been briefly flirting with pictures was now moving completely back into text. And here is Sierra putting out this cartoon, essentially, on the computer for you to play. And it was astounding. It's it's hard to picture today, but it got to have been somewhat similar to someone seeing The Wizard of Oz for the first time in 1939 when Dorothy opens the door after the tornado onto the land of Oz and suddenly it's in vivid color. That's kind of what we're looking at here. It's still parser-based. You still have to type commands to perform actions other than moving around, which you can now do using arrows. But it's a living cartoon, and it's just astounding, and it's on a system nobody wants. Doesn't matter how impressive you game you have. If nobody is buying the system your game is on, your game is over. But then in 1985, Tandy enters the picture. Tandy. Tandy is the parent company of Radio Shack. Tandy, as we've discussed before, has already had a home computer on the market for some time. They had their TRS-80 series, and they also had their TRS color computer series. They've been making home computers for a while now. And those computers are pretty ubiquitous, and they have a very high appeal value because you have the Radio Shack name behind it. It's Mm -hmm. fairly inexpensive. If little Johnny spills a glass of water on it, we make him mow lawns for a summer to replace it. (laughs) Sure. Now, Tandy, by this point, has, of course, seen that the future is in PC compatibles. They can see that. They've gotten into the PC compatible market, and what they do is they create a computer called the Tandy 1000 that has all of those bells and whistles of that PC Junior in terms of the memory and in terms of the graphical capabilities and whatnot, but layers that onto a real PC with a real keyboard and with real PC compatibility. So they basically do what IBM should have been doing all along. They create the Tandy 1000. And this computer does well. This computer takes off. Now, Sierra is primed to take advantage of that market, and they get their game, King's Quest, and over time their other games, into the Radio Shack stores. They make a deal with Tandy and get their product in there. And this, quite frankly, is what saves the company. Obviously, King's Quest sells well on the Tandy because it's a good game, and now there's a computer they'll run it on. But they stay tied into Radio Shack stores for years after that with their products that come out later. And Radio Shack does not sell much software. Not many games, I should say. At this time, the computer game market is still very much a C64 and, to some degree, Apple II market. The games market is not a PC market, even with something like the Tandy 1000 now on the market. Sierra games become some of the very few games available for PC that are top-of-the-line impressive releases, and they have distribution in every Radio Shack store. And I mean, this is a period of time when small country towns in the middle of nowhere that may not have a computer store, that may not have an electronic store, that may have nothing like that, still has a Radio Shack. Radio Shack 
used to be extremely ubiquitous. That's right. So they're getting their games in front of a wide audience, and they're getting their games in front of an audience in small-town America that doesn't necessarily have an outlet for some of the other stuff going on on a C64 or an Apple II, or at least don't have as easy an access to that kind of stuff. That saves the company, quite frankly. That is when Sierra comes back, is because of the Tandy 1000. And pretty soon they're able to move into a brand new building that is essentially the house the King's Quest built. Everything is coming up roses again for the company. So this kind of starts the next phase of Sierra. At this point, Sierra is able to start bringing in outside people again. And they're able to start building on that base that they've created with King's Quest. This is the point where they really become an adventure game company. It's not that they don't release products in other areas as well, but they really become focused more on adventure games. Before this, they'd been doing a lot of action stuff, a lot of this, a lot of that. Now they're pretty laser-focused on adventure games. They have a few other series that come out because of this. You have Police Quest that basically happens because Ken Williams played basketball at a rec center at a Y or wherever they did it with a former police officer named Jim Walls who would often tell stories about his days as a police officer. And Ken Williams was like, that's cool. You should come make a game about that for us. And so you get Police Quest. You get the two guys from Andromeda, Scott Murphy and Mark Crow, who have this idea for this send-up to sci-fi. And that becomes Space Quest, which becomes a long-running series. Most importantly at all, you have the work of Al Lowe. Al Lowe was a teacher who, in the early 1980s, got very interested in microcomputers in the emerging Apple II market and whatnot, and thought that that would be a great place to make some fun educational-type games. And so he went out and made a couple of games. They were games, but with kind of an educational twist to them. Not like these games where you're like just doing math or something, but <laughs> meant to have some educational value, not just be pure entertainment. And at a computer show, he meets the Williamses, who are very impressed. Ken Williams sees his stuff and is very impressed by it. Ken Williams, there's no doubt, has an eye for talent. That is one of the main strengths that he has always brought to Sierra. He finds people everywhere. We didn't talk about this in, in the early part of, of Sierra, and we won't go into depth about it now either, but several games made by the company were actually made by locals of Oakhurst. I mean, Oakhurst is a small town. It has no particular talent pool to it, but he was ever so often able to find somebody with some talent and that could make a game, and occasionally he'd find someone with some talent who would become an executive at the company. He would just, he would meet people, and he would be able to kind of take their stock and figure out that they had something going for him. He gets Al Lowe to come and work for him. So Al Lowe does, uh, he works on some of the Disney games, and then he is one of the many people that has to be laid off, because they lay off almost everybody. I mean, there's almost nobody left. But the clever thing that he did, Ken Williams said, I have to lay you all off, but I would be happy to continue using any of you as independent contractors if you come up with a particularly good game idea. We can't afford to pay you a salary anymore, but we will pay you for a good game if you come up with a good game. 
So Al Lowe stays in touch. He doesn't just vanish when, when he ends up having to leave the company. And then Ken Williams comes to him and basically says, you know what? I think it's time we remade soft porn adventure for the modern age here. Just to recap briefly, even though it was only an episode ago, Soft Porn Adventure was an all-text adventure game. Actually, the only text adventure, I believe, that Sierra actually released. All their others had at least pictures in them. It was an all-text adventure game created by a programmer named Chuck Benton, who was up in New England. Sierra published it, and it was a sizable success because even though it's pretty tame by today's standards, it was kind of titillating for your, your teenage crowd at the time. And it also spurred sales, as we discussed, of their entire catalog because distributors and retailers didn't want to just order that. So they'd kind of throw it in. And oh, by the way, I'll take 30 copies of this too. And so they would order more of everything. It was very clear that sex sells. And so he kind of wanted to revisit that. But in a more Sierra style, he wanted graphics now. And this is what leads to everyone's favorite game, Leisure Suit Larry. Right, because... Al Lowe looks at this game, he takes it home and he plays with it, and he's kind of like, this game is so outdated, it should be wearing a leisure suit. That's what he said, because a leisure suit was a very 1970s concept. I mean, even by 1986 or 85, 86, whenever they are thinking about this, <laughs> a leisure suit is something very outdated. So he says it's so out of date, it should be wearing a leisure suit. And so that's where he comes up with that idea of leisure suit. Larry, because he, he starts thinking about it more, and he's like, you know, this doesn't really work anymore if you play it straight. But if you play it kind of funny, if you have a central character that's kind of a lovable loser, there could be some appeal here. He essentially kept the puzzles and the basic progression of soft porn adventure intact. But he created a whole new plot, a whole new character, a whole new aesthetic to build around it. And that became Leisure Suit Larry in the Land of the Lounge Lizards, just to get all that L alliteration in. It sold somewhat slowly at first, but then word of mouth on the game was very powerful, and it ultimately sold something like 600,000 copies, which is huge. It's huge in the, in the mid to late 80s. It was released in 1987, and it took a while to hit 600,000 copies, but it, it did. Well, don't forget the initial, when you brought that game up, it would ask you, question to make sure you're an adult. That's right, because people didn't have the internet back then. You couldn't necessarily just look up the answers to some of those questions. Some of those questions were kind of funny. Mm -hmm. Where are you most likely to find a virgin? The Virgin Islands? St. Mary's Middle School? <laughs> some other place that eludes me. <laughs> Little me may have figured out which one of those was the correct answer. <laughs> Yes, indeed. King's Quest that's doing well. They've got Space Quest. They've got Police Quest. They've got Leisure Suit Larry. They've built an empire now on the back of adventure games, and things are looking up again. They prepare to take the company public, and their timing is all wrong again. They go to take the company public in 1987, and then Black Monday happens. The, the savings and loan collapse, the big market disaster, right when they're about to do their IPO. So they, they have to pull the IPO at that time. Even with that, the company is doing very well now. The next step, though, is to get that public offering actually off the ground. They fail in 87, but looking towards 1988, they really want to get the company public because that's the next step. We talked in the first episode, 
Ken Williams is laser-focused on making money and being successful and being a top dog in his field. So everything he does is calculated to reach those goals. That is his primary purpose. When it comes to going public, he knows that they need some really big games for their public offering. The biggest of the big, of course, of all their franchises is still the King's Quest series. So for King's Quest 4, we've already had three at this point. For King's Quest 4, he wants to pull out all the stops. He wants this to be even more of a Hollywood-style production than what they've done before. And so this game demands a real score, which is not something that their games had really had before. And it requires a real score by an actual Hollywood composer. Not a super famous, not a John Williams, but someone who's written music for movies and television. So he goes out and finds a guy named William Goldstein, who had done music for a few things, probably the most famous being fame, no no pun intended, and tries to sell him on doing this score. But he's just absolutely embarrassed by the PC speaker, because this is still a PC-oriented company. The graphics have improved mightily thanks to things like the Tandy 1000, and, and VGA is just around the corner. Sound is still the PC speaker. Sound is bleeps and bloops. I will try to find something that demonstrates this and throw it in the show notes. It is, if you have not heard music coming out of a PC speaker, you have not suffered. That's right. There's no way that the big score he wants to do can be in any way suited to a PC speaker. That's just poor, poor form right there. This is when he learns about the emerging world of sound cards. They're just starting. Roland has something out, the the synthesizer company, and Creative Labs is just getting going. This is a little pre-Sound Blaster, but the company's getting going. AdLib, there are a few companies that are starting to create sound cards. So clearly, this score is going to have to be composed for these sound cards. But the sound cards don't have that big a market yet. So Ken Williams actually helps these companies. He makes deals with them to advertise their products in Sierra's catalog, in Sierra's product catalog. He provides them with publicity that they would not otherwise get as these little companies trying to push this expensive new piece of technology. Ken Williams really becomes one of the principal people in the early adoption of sound cards on the IBM PC. And you have to keep in mind, in this day and age, video games on computers were really a special case. We talk about all the consoles. You had great sound and capabilities in Nintendo. The sound that comes out of a Nintendo blows a PC speaker out of the water. Sure. The sound that comes out of the Commodore 64 blows the PC speaker out of the water. Yes. The sound that comes out of an Atari 2600 blows a PC speaker out of the freaking water. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> That's a bit more of a stretch, but 
the the PC speaker is certainly as primitive as you can possibly get because the PC is not primarily a multimedia machine at this time. The multimedia revolution on the PC hasn't happened yet. It's a business computer that people occasionally bring home and may fool around with other things on. It's not the games machine. That's the Commodore 64. That's the Apple II, though at this point the Apple II is getting kind of long in the tooth. But Ken Williams insisted always on being an IBM company before all others. They kept releasing their stuff on Apple's. The Apple II finally gets to the point where people start upgrading it to 128K of memory. So King's Quest does appear on Apple computers, and some of the sequels appear on Apple computers. They're more primitive, of course, but they can at least sell them on there. He's not on the Commodore 64 because the VIC-20, the Commodore VIC-20, nearly killed his company. So he's done with Commodore. He's done with that nonsense. His games are not on consoles because the console market crash nearly killed his company. He does not put his games on the NES. King's Quest V is ported by some other company to the NES at some point later on, but it's not directly by Sierra. Sierra does not do console games, period. They don't have a console division. They don't have console programmers. They don't publish on console with just a couple of very small exceptions, like that King's Quest V port, they don't license to other companies to put on consoles. Ken Williams will not be on console. He's also not on the home computers of the 16-bit era, the Atari ST and the Amiga, which never in the United States get a huge amount of market penetration. He is on IBM because, as we talked about in our previous episode, this is a guy that really respects and understands and appreciates the titans that are at the top of their field. We said that his two biggest heroes were Jim Henson and Walt Disney, men that built empires by having a certain amount of skill and knowledge in a particular field, but then used their business acumen and their vision to grow something bigger than anyone could have possibly imagined. IBM isn't quite the same as that because they're not a creative company, but IBM is the gold standard in computers. Ken Williams is convinced that IBM's day is going to come. And that makes him a visionary. He's too early. Every year he thinks it's going to be the year, 86, 87, 88, whatever. This is going to be the year that PC finally arrives because he can't imagine that the company that is the gold standard in computers, that is the gold standard in personal computers in the workplace, isn't going to one of these days figure out how to get an advanced computer in the home. And he knows it's coming because as they try to expand their product line in anticipation of going public, they make a deal with Game Arts, which is a Japanese computer game publisher, to bring some of their games over to the United States and publish them under the Sierra label. He's been to Japan, and he's seen the NEC computers, NEC computers. These computers have great graphics. They're not straight PCs. They're based on a somewhat similar architecture, but they're not PCs. And they have a higher resolution because, as we've talked about before, you need to be able to distinguish individual kanji on the monitor. And you can't do that without a very high-resolution monitor. So the Japanese computers are way ahead 
of the similar IBM PC and PC compatible computers in the U.S. market because they need that resolution to display the graphics. But Ken Williams recognizes right away that this level of graphical sophistication may not be in the United States now because it's not needed in a business setting. But if they can do it in Japan, IBM and Compaq and all the other companies making PCs are going to eventually bring that same level of graphical sophistication to the United States. It's just going to take more time. So he continues to ride that IBM PC, believing that this is the computer that is eventually going to dominate everything. When he hits an obstacle like only having a very primitive PC speaker on a PC and him wanting to do a big elaborate score for the latest King's Quest game, his solution is not going to be, we'll put this on the Amiga instead. No, his solution is going to be, if the PC can't do this, we have to make the PC do this. That's the same in all other fields. We mentioned briefly in the previous episode that he had one of the first games that allowed play over a modem. Mixed Up Mother Goose, which is, I know, a game that you're familiar with, mm -hmm. was the first entertainment product to appear on a CD-ROM. It didn't originally appear on a CD-ROM. It originally came out on disc. But there was a CD-ROM version, and that came out in 1988, which even predates uh, Manhole that the Miller brothers did for Mediagenic. They pushed sound cards before anyone else. I don't think they were the very first company to support a sound card. But it's not just the King's Quest IV supported sound cards. It's that they marketed sound cards on behalf of the sound card companies. They pushed sound cards onto people. A couple years later, King's Quest V is one of the very early games to support VGA graphics. They're pushing the technology on the PC because Ken Williams is convinced that the PC is going to dominate and that the only way for the PC to be a dominant games machine and for his games to be dominant games on the PC is to push the technology as much as possible. So he's not the only guy that you have to give credit to for technological advancement on the PC. Certainly Chris Roberts with Wing Commander, and we talked about in the Origin episode. Certainly the Miller brothers with Myst, Trilobite with the Seventh Guest. These all play a role. But King's Quest IV, King's Quest V, King's Quest VI, the games that they're releasing in this time period, are also a very big part of that shift from seeing the PC as the ugly business stepchild of the game industry and instead becoming the dominant multimedia player that remains pretty much the only game in town if you want to do PC gaming to this day, or computer gaming to this day. But I mean, we call it PC gaming because... It's PC game. <laughs> exactly. And this really exemplifies something that is very prevalent in the game industry for PC games where... They constantly push the limit of what the hardware can do, what the sound is capable of doing, what we can do as far as immersion. Just look at what they're doing with VR and the Oculus Rift. Mm -hmm. It's really pushing the capability. You need a high-end system in order to run an Oculus. I mean, you're spending $800 for an Oculus. Then you're going to have to spend eight, nine, a thousand, fifteen hundred on a PC to support that piece of hardware in order to 
get the kind of experience that you want to get. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing with a lot of PC gamers is that if their hobby is constantly upgrading and building up these systems and making sure it's always able to be on the bleeding edge as best it can right now, and I got to upgrade it again in six months to a year. Right. We talked about in the Origin episode how Chris Roberts realized when Sid Meier at Microprose created F-19 Stealth Fighter, a game that could only run on the most cutting edge of machines, and it sold well anyway, Chris Roberts realized that if you have a truly exceptional game, if you have a truly impressive game, you don't want to limit yourself by trying to do middle-of-the-road specs, because if your game is impressive enough, People will buy new hardware to play it. If you program it, they will buy. That's very true. Maybe not everybody, but enough people. Ken Williams pretty much independently comes to the same conclusion. These King's Quest games of this period do very, very well. Games like King's Quest 4 and King's Quest 5 are selling, you know, like half a million a pop, which on PC is outstanding. That's that's the equivalent to, in today's market uh, of console games, probably of selling 10 million units. Just in terms of how far ahead of the competition that puts you. Obviously not in terms of the profits or anything like that, but just in terms of your volume compared to the average game. That's probably like doing 10 million units. I mean, that is a home run. They're pushing these new technologies. They're pushing the sound card, and they're then pushing the VGA graphics and, and all of this stuff. The LucasArts games, games like Maniac Mansion and Monkey Island, Secret of Monkey Island, they are the games that are fondly remembered today. Not the Sierra games, but the Sierra games are the games that sold at the time. Maniac Mansion was not selling half a million units. Secret of Monkey Island was not selling half a million units. There's a disconnect here because... Quite frankly, a lot of the Sierra Adventure output was not very good. They were always at the cutting edge technologically, so it always looked great, it always felt great, it always sounded great. But in hindsight, the game design was somewhat lacking. The controls on the pre-Icon days, King's Quest V finally went to a fully Icon-based system, similar to what LucasArts had already pioneered with their scum engine. But the pre-Icon games, one through four, they had very finicky controls. You hit the arrow once and they start moving in a direction. You hit the arrow in that same direction and they stop. Or you hit the arrow in another direction and they immediately start moving in that direction without any transition. I have lost so many people to the tree. Yes. They decided that they needed to be realistic so that if you're on a ladder and you fall off the ladder because there's not anti-aliasing. The, the ladders aren't straight up and down. It's pixels, so it's, and it's an isometric world, so they're slightly diagonal, so you always have to be tweaking the way you're moving a little bit. And they decided that if you fall off the ladder, or if you fall out of the tree in the first game, that that's going to kill you. There are a million ways to die in a Sierra adventure game. Leisure Suit Larry. You start in this rundown bar. You go outside uh, the bar. Um, You go to the left, you die. Yeah, if you go to the left, you die because there's a guy in the alley that beats you up. You go to the right, there's a dumpster. But if you go more to the right, you die. Right, and if you go straight down, 
There isn't another screen, but that's the street. So if you go straight down from the door of that bar, a car runs you over and you die. And there's no indication that there are cars. It's not like there's constant traffic. It's just if you step into the street, then there's a car and you die. Mm-hmm. It's so arbitrary. The puzzle designs are often not very good. Some of the King's Quest games are, are saved a little bit because they did implement that multiple solutions thing. So there's a point total because all early adventure games have point totals. Doing the trickiest solution or often doing the most nonviolent solution nets you the maximum number of points. And it's only by doing the best solution for each puzzle that you can get the maximum number of points if you care about that thing. You can beat the games with a smaller number of points by doing less optimal solutions that may be a little easier to figure out. That helps a little, but only a little. King's Quest 3 and King's Quest 4 both have some very tricky time limit elements to them. King's Quest 3, in the beginning of the game, and it's the hardest one in the series by far, in the beginning of the game, your hero, Prince Alexander, he doesn't know he's a prince yet, is a slave of a wizard. He can only gather the items he needs to eventually overcome and kill the wizard by going out into the world, which he can only do when the wizard is gone, and everything's on a clock. It's all happening in real time. So you only have a certain amount of time to be out in the world before you have to go back, but then have to hide all your items under your bed. You can't have anything in your inventory, because if the wizard catches you with stuff in your inventory, then he kills you. And you have chores you have to do, too. And you do. You do have chores you have to do, too. And heck, this is all even assuming that you can get your character, Prince Alexander, down the spiral staircase in the wizard's home without killing yourself because of the janky controls. You were lucky if you left the tower. You were. And you're trying to figure out how to solve these puzzles, but you can never be outside too long. And some characters only appear in certain places at certain times anyway. There's a lot of real time moving around to characters, and it's just, oh my god, it's, it's terrible. King's Quest IV is on an overall time limit. You only have a certain amount of time because uh, your dad, good old King Graham of Daventry, has had a heart attack, and you have to get this magical restorative fruit or whatever to bring him back before he dies. So there, there's a hard time limit. Some of the controls of that one are absolutely terrible. There's one point where you have to be swallowed by a whale and grab an item inside the whale and then leave, which seems like that should be simple enough. But the entire surface of the whale's lower jaw, mouth, whatever, is slick, except for this one path. And it's not a straight path. It's not a linear path. And it's not a path that's highlighted on the screen. It's not like you can see it. It's all one solid thing. It's one solid color. You don't have something like ridges to say, oh, here might be a spot where I can sort of work my way up, or here's a safe place where I can walk along to the left and then work my way up. Mm -hmm. It's just a more or less, I took a picture of the inside of a whale's mouth, and then a programmer decided, okay, I'm arbitrarily going to have this zigzag pattern to get to the output. Right. And if you mess up, you fall all the way back to the bottom. King's Quest IV is the first game that enabled mouse support. It wasn't an icon-driven system yet, but you could at least click on the screen to do some things. So whether you tried to do it by walking with the arrow keys or whether you tried to do it by clicking on specific points with the mouse, it was just, it was terrible. I mean, maybe I was missing something, I'll admit. Maybe I was missing something, but when I played King's Quest IV, that's the point where I threw in the towel. 
And there's another thing about PC games of this era. We don't take into account a lot, especially with modern games, how frame rate works or how a processing quote-unquote turn is. Mm -hmm. A lot of these earlier games, they assume that your PC was slow and sad (laughs) and it will just eat up as much CPU cycles as it can find because it is always assumed that I can never have too many. Right. (laughs) There's no upper limit to this. So if you actually play this game past a 486, maybe even on some 486s, which is still a problem, right? where the game would run too fast for you to even do anything. You start clicking to move one of these characters. They zoom across the screen so fast before you have a chance to even stop them from doing anything, which makes the game practically unplayable. Yes. Without Moslow. I don't even know if Moslow still exists, but... Back in the day, that's what you use to fix that. Now, probably, you just throw it into DOSBox, and DOSBox has its own slowdown stuff. But It it limits the amount of CPU speed and all that stuff. But Back in the day when you were not emulating DOS, because your computer was still running DOS... You would load down the processor with a program called MoSlow in order to get it so that that your game would run properly because you had too much CPU. Uh, PC gaming in the 90s, man. We could tell you stories. Yeah, it almost feels like we could do an episode, except it would just be a bunch of sadness and complaining, and we'd just sound like bitter old men being like, how back in our day we had to walk uphill both ways in the snow just to go to the only PC in town and stick our boot disc in it. But So we we won't do that episode, which would be incredibly depressing. But yeah, 90s PC gaming, that's a bit of a tangent, but oh my gosh. Yeah, and we are bitter old men who, <laughs> outside of this podcast and us recording, do constantly complain about that. <laughs> yeah. So then another thing with King's Quest Four is there's this one island where you can only go once. And on this island is a bridal that you need to complete the game. There's no graphical representation of it. This may be a bug. The thing about King's Quest Four is it got really behind schedule, and they had to throw a lot of additional people on it and redesign a lot of it from scratch at kind of the last minute because it had to come out because that was going to be their flagship product when they went public in 1988. So they needed it to be out there in time for the IPO. So this, in all fairness, may be a bug, but it's still in the game, so we can still complain about it. There is no visual representation of this bridal. The only way to get it is to use the look command over and over again as you go across every inch of this island until it finally says, oh, hey, there's a bridal here. You can only go to this island once. How are you supposed to know to do that? Exactly. The game is basically unbeatable without a walkthrough. I mean, I think many of the King's Quest games are extremely difficult without a walkthrough, but this one is almost flat out impossible without a walkthrough. You know, it sold because it was pretty for the time, and it had the score, and it was technically impressive. Sierra had the name recognition, Sierra had the marketing clout, and Sierra just had the plain, impressive technology, and was basically the only game in town on on the PC for the longest time, or at least the best game in town on the PC, since they were optimized for that instead of doing it first on the Commodore 64 or the Amiga or whatever. Their games sold, even though they didn't have some of the processes that a LucasArts had. I mean, a game like Monkey Island was a direct reaction to the unfairness of King's Quest games. 
Ron Gilbert was not a big adventure game player, but he created Maniac Mansion because in part, well, he was already creating a B-movie haunted house type game, but he made it an adventure game because he played a King's Quest game and was just so frustrated by the parser. So he created the Scum Engine as a reaction to that parser. And he was fed up with all the dying and all the dead ends and whatnot. And so Maniac Mansion, because he was new at designing adventure games, still had some dead ends and some no-win scenarios in it inadvertently. But with Monkey Island, he was being very, very careful to avoid any kind of dead ends and avoid any kind of death situation because he really did not like that Sierra Adventure Game School. And today, it's the Ron Gilbert School of Adventure Games that has won out. Today, people believe that that is the way to craft an adventure game. But back in the day, while those games were highly regarded by critics and had their fans, they were not the big sellers that the Sierra Adventure Games were. But now, if you look at people that compose lists of top 100 PC games or top 50 PC games or whatever of all time, you're going to find few, if any, Sierra Adventures on there. But you'll find some LucasArts games, that's for sure. You know, that, that's just kind of an, an interesting contrast, because today, it's, they're just not the first games that people think of, quite frankly. But in their time, they were huge. So Sierra becomes a public company in 1988. Now the next stage that the company needs to take, if they're going to keep growing, is they need to expand by buying other companies. This is the period of time when consolidation is beginning to hit the computer game industry. In the 1980s, it used to be okay to be a company that just did one or two things really well. Surtex, the wizardry company, great. Origins, the Ultima company, fantastic. SSI is the wargaming company, and later on, the, you know, the gold box company. It's like, swell. You can do that. Well, game development's getting more expensive. Certain publishers are getting bigger than others, like your Electronic Artses and your Activisions, before Activision kind of falls off the mediagenic cliff. And you can't really be good at just one thing anymore. Ken Williams understands innately that the company needs to start diversifying. And there are a couple of different ways to do this. There's diversifying your own in-house product, and there's seeking out other companies. He does both. The first company that they buy is a company up in Eugene, Oregon, called Dynamics. Dynamics has made its bones really as a as a military simulation company primarily. It's not the only stuff they did, but that was the big one. Damon Sly, one of the co-founders of the company, had created a game called Stellar 7 way back in 1984 that was impressive because it offered Battlezone-style gameplay, vector graphics, three-dimensional world, on computer platforms, which was just kind of stunning for that time period. That led to a deal with Electronic Arts to do an updated version of that on the Amiga in 1986 called Arctic Fox because they were really pushing the Amiga briefly. Electronic Arts was, as we discussed. And from there, they became an affiliated publisher of Activision and started publishing their own product. And Damon Sly was really getting into the flight simulation, the accurate simulation stuff. 
And they published a slew of games. They did like six or seven in one year, which was impressive for a small publisher. One of which was a game called A-10 Tank Killer, which was a flight simulator simulating the A-10 close air support attack aircraft. The A-10, this was released like in 1989, I think. And then during the Gulf War, the A-10 was heavily covered as this amazing plane that the, uh, that the U.S. Air Force had. And so A-10 sold bucket load because the A-10 was in the press. Ken Williams was very impressed that they were able to publish all of those games. He saw that this was a talented company with talented people that could really get stuff done. Dynamics hated the hassle of being a publisher. Being a publisher is hard. So it was kind of a match made in heaven. So Ken Williams ends up buying Dynamics. And Dynamics basically continues to operate completely independently. It still has its own president. It still has its own staff and everything. It's just that now certain publishing responsibilities are are taken on by Sierra. So they have a little less pressure to survive. So that gets them into flight simulators. Dynamics does a game called Red Baron that is hugely popular, a World War I simulator. They do Aces over the Pacific and Aces over Europe, which are very popular World War II simulators. They branch out into some other areas. Jeff Tunnell, the other founder, is really interested in doing adventure games, so they actually do their own adventure game system. They don't borrow Sierras, they make their own and get involved in that, and they have some real success. Internally, he starts looking for new talent, and he goes through a system where he basically hires a new game developer and has them apprentice with an existing game developer to help them on one of their projects, and then gives them the opportunity to create their own game after that. And so that's how, for instance, Jane Jensen joins the company. She's wants to get involved in writing, and she helps out on King's Quest VI with Roberta Williams, and then is given the opportunity to do her own series, which becomes the Gabriel Knight series of kind of not straight horror adventure gaming, but kind of dark gothic kind of adventure games with lots of voodoo and lots of stuff like that, conspiracy theories and, and whatnot. So that's another series that becomes a hit. He realizes that they need to get into role-playing games because role-playing games are big and they're not really in there. And that leads him to accept an idea for a programmer that's already working at the company called Corey Cole, whom, along with uh, his wife, Lori Cole, has been avid D&D aficionados and have published some paper products on their own, pen and paper products on their own, to do a kind of adventure game, role-playing game hybrid. And that becomes the Quest for Glory series, which is far more playable than a lot of the adventure games that the company was doing at the time, because Laurie and Corey had kind of a better idea on how to do some design. And so Quest for Glory becomes another kind of big staple series for them. He looks at all sorts of other stuff, too. He almost buys Westwood at one point, the makers of Dune 2. They came very close to signing, but in the end, Virgin was also courting them, and they felt that they would have just a little bit more freedom at Virgin to do what they wanted, and so they went with Virgin instead of with Sierra. Of course, as you know from reading Masters of Doom, they almost bought Id at yep. one point as well. Yep. 
he's looking everywhere. He's trying to build the company some more. He doesn't end up buying that many companies in these early days, but he does strike it rich with dynamics, at least. And he's constantly on the lookout for new things and still on the lookout for new technologies, which is why he does the Sierra Network, which we talked about in the first episode. So we don't really need to repeat that again, except just to say he's got this network going for people to meet and play games together and adventure together. And it's kind of the the World Wide Web in microcosm, but it's just a network of PCs in the office that's running this whole thing. So there's a lot going on, but once again, Ken Williams' kind of weakness manifests itself because of this. We talked in the first episode about how he's not really the administrative type. He's not really the nitty-gritty detail type. That's just not his thing. He recognizes talent. He recognizes good game design. Well, I should say he recognizes game design that's going to be popular. We already discussed how a lot of the game design isn't actually all that good. He is good at going around and inspiring teams to do a good job and do better. He's good at being a CEO. He's good at being the vision guy, as we said. He's not so good being the day-to-day guy. It's getting to the point where the people that he has surrounding him to try and kind of handle some of that stuff just aren't good enough. And the reason for that, quite frankly, is Oakhurst, California. Sierra is still in this little town in the foothills. There's a little more there than there was when they first arrived. There's a supermarket now. That's good. Apparently 1,500 people showed up for the grand opening of that supermarket because that was, that was an exciting and pretty big deal. It's like our first day when we had indoor plumbing. <laughs> right. So there's a little more there than there used to be, but there's not much there. So if you are hotshot salesman, if you are a hotshot financial guy, if you are a hotshot president guy, are you going to go work for the company in Silicon Valley that really wants you? Where you have all the culture of San Francisco and Stanford and everything else going on? Or are you going to go to this little sleepy town in the mountains to work for Sierra? I like mountains. It's cold. <laughs> nine and a half out of ten people. We'll go with nine and three quarters. Yeah are not going to come to Oakhurst, California. This is a problem. And as much as they enjoyed building their big house in Oakhurst and having their family, I, I don't just mean their, their children, but I mean their Sierra family, all together in this little town, this just isn't going to work anymore. So in 1993, they moved the corporate headquarters to... Bellevue, Washington, suburb of Seattle. They still leave a good portion of the product development in Oakhurst. Oakhurst becomes the Sierra Publishing Division of Sierra Online, and the vast majority of the product development people stay there in Oakhurst. But the corporate offices are now in the Seattle area because that will allow them to bring in talent, and they need talent. Because as good as things are going for the company in some ways, at the dawn of the 1990s, there are some problems. 
the Imagination Network, the network that they put together, uh, which they did as a joint venture with AT&T, is losing money like crazy. They just can't get it to work. They can't get enough subscribers because you're still talking about very slow modem technology and you're talking about hourly rates. They just can't get the critical mass to make that profitable. Yeah, this is back in the day. Younger people will not remember this. The internet cost by the hour. You would pay your connection fee, then you would pay however much it would be per hour of internet usage, plus you were tying up a phone line. So you'd had... Right, and most people did not have more than one phone line. Yeah, so it cost a lot more, almost as much as it does now to have in your cable modem or your DSL modem or your fiber optic connection because you had to pay for another phone line. There's another $10, $15, $20. You have to pay for your internet connection. There's another $20. There's $40 right there. Then you're paying by the hour. That's probably another five-something. It can get pretty crazy. Right. So they, they just couldn't get the critical mass on that. They were having difficulty getting the deals done that they needed to get done to expand the company. They bought Dynamics, but in 1991, they actually almost merged with Broderbund which would have been a match made in heaven because Broderbund had so much of the educational and productivity market, and Sierra had so much of the games market and dabbled a little bit in some of the productivity and, and other stuff as well. But they couldn't come to an agreement. They called the deal off. That didn't work. So they were starting to have some struggles growing. The overhead on the companies they had bought were getting out of hand because Sierra Publishing and Dynamics, and then they bought a couple of other companies as well, a French company called Cocktail Vision and another company called Bright Star. All of these companies had a complete management team with a chief operating officer and a head sales guy and a head accounting guy and all of this. So they had a lot of overhead through all of these subsidiaries that they'd already bought. The company started losing money. The games were still very successful, but particularly the Imagination Network was just dragging them down. And so they needed a new guy to come in and straighten these things out. The guy they got in was a financial guy named Mike Brochu, who's actually a guy I've interviewed. I have not interviewed many Sierra people, <laughs> but I have interviewed Mike Brochu, who is the... Uh, originally CFO and then the president and chief operating officer of Sierra in the mid-90s. This was a huge break with the past, to bring in a guy like this to work so closely with Ken Williams and essentially be his right-hand man. I interviewed a guy named Chris Garski, who was only very, very briefly at Sierra in 1991 as a marketing guy. He had a long career in the industry. He just wasn't in Sierra long. And when he was there in 1991, I mean, he says that company was Ken and John Williams's company. John Williams, just to remind from the previous episode, uh, is the brother of Ken Williams, who came on very early to do sales and then moved into marketing, was head of marketing for a long time then stepped into running their fan magazine, Interaction Magazine, which they put out for free every month or bi-monthly or whatever it was to people that registered their Sierra products and all of that. So he was an integral part of what was going on, though he was not a co-owner or anything. 
And Chris Garsky said when he was there in 1991, it was their company. They were the ones really calling the shots on everything because Ken Williams is a bit of a control freak, as we also discussed before. Chris Garsky finally left uh, for a, for another job because he felt kind of stymied in what he could do. And he was just, he wasn't placed in charge of the whole company or anything. He was just a marketing guy, you know, working under John Williams. So he, they had tried, as we talked about with Dick Sunderland, to bring in a president back in the early 80s on the advice of the venture capitalists. It didn't work. They clashed and clashed and clashed, and Ken Williams finally fired him. I don't know how he did it, but Mike Brochu was able to get Ken Williams to take him into his confidence and to kind of make him his right-hand man. Even when he was CFO, even though he didn't have the president title originally, he basically operated it as the president of the company from the very beginning. He's a financial guy. He's not a game player. He's not a creative guy. He doesn't understand that side of the business. He readily admitted that to me himself. But he knew how to run an efficient organization, and he knew how to make a deal. First thing he did is he got rid of, maybe not the first thing, but one of the first things he did was he got rid of all that overhead. Dynamics and Sierra Publishing and these other places, they became studios. They implemented the same kind of studio structure that places like EA had already been pioneering. So they got rid of a lot of senior executives. There's no longer going to be a COO and a finance guy and a sales guy and whatnot at all of these different organizations. We're just going to have all of that centralized in Bellevue, and you guys are just going to concentrate on what you do best, which is making product. He replaced a lot of the high-level executives, even at the headquarters, in areas like sales and legal and purchasing and finance, all of these kind of non-sexy parts of a video game company. But these are areas where people had basically ended up in those positions because they were promoted from within Sierra or whatever, or because they were some of the few people that they could convince to come out to Oakhurst. So a lot of them weren't people that were necessarily suited to the administrative side of the company. They were creative people or whatever that had ended up in an administrative role especially after uh, <laughs> the uh, longtime CFO of the company, Ed Heinbockel, had actually left the company in 1991 to found his own company and took a few people like Jim Walls of PoliceQuest fame with him. He put a better administrative team in place. He streamlined the overhead, got rid of that imagination network. They managed to pawn the whole thing off onto AT&T. It was already a joint venture. They were able to sell their interest to AT&T and get out of that. He started making deals with other companies. Now, he didn't identify the companies. Ken Williams would identify the companies that he thought were very good at what they were doing. And then Mike Brochu would close the deal. He'd be the one that would make the deal. So they bought Papyrus, which was very well regarded for its racing simulations. These are Games that focus less on the adrenaline and action. These aren't your Daytona USA type racing games. These are, these are more your Gran Turismo type racing games, except on the computer where it's accurately modeling the physics and whatnot. They buy impressions, makers of Lords of the Realm, so that they can get into the strategy arena. They bought Sublogic, which were the creators of the original Flight Simulator game that eventually became Microsoft Flight Simulator. 
the founder of the company, the Creative Flight Simulator, Bruce Artwick, wasn't there anymore, but the company was still around and still making products. So they bought that company because that gave them another entree into the simulation space, even though they already had Dynamics doing some of that stuff as well. So they targeted companies that could complement what they already had and expand what they already had. And what Ken Williams did is he became kind of the chief cheerleader and the guy that held all of these different companies together. Freed from having to run the day-to-day in the office because Mike Brochu could do that, he would fly around to all of these different studios that are now in disparate parts of the country and interface directly with the studios there and see what they needed and see what they were doing and provide encouragement and provide support and really became the person that was holding this organization together as a visionary, while Mike Brochu became the guy that was running the day-to-day. And this is one of those examples. We talk a lot of times about that central thesis of having creative and having business and needing to have them in harmony. This was arguably the period when creative and business were most in harmony at Sierra because of this division of responsibility between Ken Williams and Mike Brochu. And this was the period of time when the company was doing its best. It was a, it was a brief period. We're talking 93 to 95 or 96. So it's a brief period of time, but during that period of time, they're making money, they're highly profitable, and they are very briefly the number one computer game company by market share in the entire industry. I mean, they are just one of the top dogs in computer gaming. They're not on consoles at all because Ken Williams hates consoles, but they're number one in the computer game industry. And they put out a lot of really famous games then. Dynamics put out the Earth Siege, Star Siege, Tribes Mm -hmm. during this time. They they also had the front page for football and baseball series of sports simulations at Dynamics. Uh, The baseball game never did quite as well, but the football game was highly regarded. They had games that fit everything from the casual to the AAA. They did, in the early 90s, uh, Hoyle Card Games collection which they, they partnered with Hoyle. They got the license from the big card game company. It was just, it was a collection of card games. There, there were these little animated heads for all the different players that were kind of responsive and interesting to look at, and it had a wide variety of card games, and so that sold well as a casual game. Dynamics did a game in 1995 called The Incredible Machine, which was just a game where you created all of these Rube Goldberg-esque devices in order to solve puzzles. It sold a quarter of a million copies uh, and made huge profits because they developed that for almost nothing. I mean, it was a very cheap game to make. Yeah, the early 90s, mid 90s, it was hard not to almost see an entire shelf dedicated to Sierra products. They were huge. And then their biggest hit ever, uh, kind of their high watermark, I guess, if you will, was in 1995 with the game Phantasmagoria. This was, again, an example of them pushing the state of the art. It ended up being the wrong state of the art because this was the period, the Sillywood period, where it was thought that interactive movies would kind of be the future of adventure gaming, maybe even the future of all gaming. Phantasmagoria was a horror game filmed with live actors against computer-generated sets. It was all blue screen work, not green screen, blue screen. It was designed to be an introductory level game, so it didn't have a lot of the unfair and arbitrary puzzle nonsense that most of the King's Quest games did. Really, the puzzles were too easy. I mean, 
seems like Roberta Williams, because she designed this too, either makes the puzzles too ridiculous or makes them so they're no puzzles at all. It received a lot of press because it was a mature game and had some slightly more graphic death scenes. It had a rape scene, which was incredibly controversial. That all kind of generated a lot of press, and it was technically impressive as an interactive movie because kind of the pioneer of that, Seventh Guest, they ran into problems where because of improper blending between the blue screen backgrounds and the live actors that were filmed, there was always a halo effect around the characters, kind of this shimmering effect because it's pixels where they couldn't get rid of the blue screen. It's like artifacts generated by that blue screen because the it's not a seamless integration of the actors with the CGI. At Sierra, Roberta Williams insisted that they keep going back and going back and going back until all of those artifacts were gone. Compared to Seventh Guest, which would come out just two or three years before, Phantasmagoria looked amazing. It had a lot of press for some of the edginess of it, and it had a kind of traditional B for movie kind of story, but it wasn't a bad story for that kind of milieu. It came on like seven CDs, which is not nearly as much gameplay as it sounds like, because it's just video compression wasn't, the <laughs> wasn't as good back then. Uh, so it got a lot of press for that, and it sold over a million copies, which is the first time that any Sierra game had sold that many copies, because PC games, historically, a major hit was more in the half million range. So they've got that going that's selling a million units. They've got Dynamics humming on all cylinders. They have all of this great stuff going on. And they probably could have continued going on great. But then, unfortunately, they were made an offer they couldn't refuse. One of the board members of the company, of Sierra, was a guy named Walter Forbes. And Walter Forbes was the founder of a company called CompuCard that was essentially the Amazon of its day, its day being the 1970s. They had a shopping service that was telephone-based. It was a membership and telephone-based, and you'd call in and order stuff. Then they expanded onto some of the early online services. They expanded onto the source and then even on to America Online and Prodigy and some of the others. So they were essentially an early e-commerce organization, originally called CompuCard, and then they just shortened it to CUC, C-U-C International, or C-U-C International. They probably didn't pronounce it CUC because that, that could get problematic in a hurry. AOL keyword C-U-C-I-N-T. In 1996, Walter Forbes decided he wanted to expand CUC out of just the e-commerce realm and into the interactive entertainment business. So he went and looked and decided, I'm going to get the best edutainment company on the market, and I'm going to get the best pure entertainment computer game company on the market, and I'm going to buy them and smoosh them together into something new. He was already on the board of Sierra at this time. So he already knew how well Sierra was doing. He literally made Ken Williams an offer he couldn't refuse. Ken Williams was not looking to sell the business. Ken Williams did not need to sell the business. The business was fine, but it is a publicly traded company. So the CEO of a publicly traded company has a certain level of responsibility to do right by the shareholders of that company. 
So when Walter Forbes comes in and offers $1.5 billion to purchase Sierra, Ken Williams cannot say no. Not in keep his job. That is way over the valuation of the company. I don't know what the exact valuation was, but it sure as heck was not $1.5 billion. He has a duty to the shareholders to accept that offer so long as it feels like the value of the company will be maintained. I mean, he, he doesn't have to just sell out. Walter Forbes is a very impressive guy and a very, has very good business acumen, and he promised Ken Williams that he would maintain a lot of control over the company after the purchase, that he'd become one of like three vice presidents or presidents or something or another within CUC, and he'd be on the board, and he'd have total control over Sierra specifically, and all of this. You know, he's made a lot of promises about what his role would be. So with those assurances combined with this ridiculous sale price, he said yes. At the same time, Walter Forbes also buys, as I was saying, the top edutainment company in the business, which is Davidson's and Associates. Davidson's and Associates is known for a variety of educational products. They also happen to be the owner of a little company called Blizzard Entertainment. That's not their main focus. They're an entertainment company, but they bought Blizzard. Meh. So these are combined together to form a new company. And right away, there's a huge culture clash. The Davidsons are very conservative. They're very religiously conservative. They're, they're fundamentalist-type conservatives. At this time, Sierra is working on the sequel to Phantasmagoria, Phantasmagoria 2. It's a strange game. It's very different from the first one. I don't think the game would have probably ever sold that well anyway. But under this new arrangement, it was the Davidson side of the operation that primarily had control of distribution for this entire new CUC interactive organization. Ken Williams is pretty convinced that the Davidsons did everything they could to kind of bury Phantasmagoria and Phantasmagoria 2. Now, is that true? Maybe. On the other hand, Davidsons and Associates owned Blizzard when Blizzard made a little game called Diablo. So <laughs> I'm not sure if Ken Williams is really fully accurate on that or if it's quite frankly that the Davidsons just decided they weren't very good games and that's why they didn't. because. Blizzard had no problem selling Diablo. Diablo had a lot of blood, a lot of demonic. It had hell, Jeff. Well, yes. It had hell. But I had to go down really far down to get to hell. Yes. And Davidson's never really interfered with Blizzard. If there's been one common feature of every company that's owned Blizzard, and they've been owned by a few different companies now, it's that every single one of them leaves them the F alone. And they just sit back and wait for the Blizzard eventual train of money to come in. Pretty much. Was that really the problem, considering the great track record that Blizzard had with the Davidsons? I don't know. But that's, that's Ken Williams' side of the story. But there was definitely a clash there. There was a clash between these two parts of the company, and Ken Williams felt that he was not given the control that he was promised. So eventually he walks away from the company. He doesn't stay very long. He's a control freak. So if he's not in control, what's he doing there? You know. Other problems very quickly occur. In 1997, CUC makes another deal. They merge with a company called HFS Incorporated, which is a hospitality company. Products for hotels and, and stuff like that. 
and they form a new company called Sendant Corporation, C-E-N-D-A-N-T. Not long after that deal is finished, it's discovered that Walter Forbes and his executive staff had engaged in some rather dodgy accounting practices over the course of several years. Maybe something called fraud? Yeah. There was jail time involved. It was pretty bad. That throws Sendon into complete and utter turmoil. Eventually, that's what leads to the sale of the entire Sendent Corporation to Vivendi, a French public utilities company with a chairman that had aspirations of becoming a major media conglomerate. They bought Universal Pictures, they bought Sendent and got that stuff, and they bought uh, all sorts of things. I think they were actually technically, I think, I think they were briefly actually owned by a different French company called Havas, and then Havas was purchased by Vivendi. So there was actually one other step in between, but suddenly these French get involved. So all of this is going on, and really, without Ken Williams there, the structure that he had in place for the company breaks down. The company worked because Ken Williams had the energy and the drive and the willingness to fly between all of these different places. They've got all these studios and kind of hold them all together through his own person. Once Sierra is just a smaller part of a larger company, then it becomes more of a bean counter kind of situation. Why does our Sierra division have people in Oakhurst and Seattle and Oregon and France and here and there and everywhere? That's not efficient. So slowly over time, these start to get more and more and more and more consolidated. Dynamics closes in 2001. Oakhurst, I think, is shut down even before that, like at the end of the 90s. You know, piece by piece, the Sierra legacy is kind of dismantled in, in the interest of greater efficiency as being part of this much bigger company. Until finally, it's just a label, and then finally that label is retired. And that's the end of Sierra. The Sierra label's back again. Activision, which merged into Vivendi to form Activision Blizzard and then became independent of Vivendi again, but took everything, all the game stuff with it. So even though Blizzard and Sierra and whatnot weren't part of Activision before the merger, they were all part of Activision when Activision left the merger. Activision eventually brought the label back just a couple of years ago, but that really has no ties to the original Sierra. Ken Williams' final legacy, the final thing that he did before leaving the company, one of the last game deals he made, he left before the game actually came out, was for a very interesting-looking first-person shooter combining story elements with first-person gameplay called Half-Life, which was published under the Sierra Entertainment brand by Vivendi. That was one of the last deals. So right up to the end, Ken Williams had that great eye for talent and that great eye for video games. And Half-Life never went anywhere because obviously <laughs> we don't have Half-Life 3. So. Well, yes. Well, of course we don't have Half-Life 3. They have to make Half-Life 2 Episode 3 before they make Half-Life 3, and I'm sure that one's coming out any day now. I heard about it next week. <laughs> there you have it. Right here on They Create Worlds, Half-Life 3 confirmed. <laughs> it's, not really. It's not confirmed. So one imagines that if they hadn't sold out, that Ken Williams would have continued to grow that company and continue to be a success with that company and bring in interesting talent like Valve 
right up until he finally got sick of the whole thing and retired, which maybe he was a couple of years away from anyway, who knows. But after he left Sierra, that's what he did. He did retire. Roberta was there a little bit longer. She was right in the middle of the latest King's Quest game. That one ended up being a disaster. It was pulled in too many different directions. Point-and-click adventures weren't doing well anymore. There was felt that there needed to be more RPG elements because those were big. It felt that maybe some more action elements were needed. Too many cooks in the kitchen. Vision completely compromised. And it was released uh, to no kind of acclaim. And once that was out the door, Roberta left too. They're both retired now. I think they spend a lot of time sailing around the world on their boat. And they've never been back in the video game industry again. They left us a legacy of 20 years or so of top-notch entertainment, which even if sometimes it wasn't always the most brilliantly designed, it was always a technical tour de force. It was always those games that you went to when you wanted to show off all the cool new things you could do on your computer these days. They just played such an integral role in developing the industry we know today. So thank you, Roberta and Ken. Happy sailing, and we thank you for the memories all through the 80s and 90s. Absolutely. So what, after this two-episode insanity, shall we talk about next time? Well, after spending so much time uh, dwelling on not just the computer game industry, but computer game companies these last three episodes, it feels like maybe a, a change of pace is in order, and maybe talk about the history of some game genres uh, instead of companies for a bit. One of the biggest genres of the late 80, of the mid to late 80s and early 90s and even beyond into the late 90s I think was the kind of the beat 'em up and the fighting game. They're sort of two separate genres, but they're also kind of linked a little bit. A lot of that story comes out of Japan, so there are parts of it that are difficult to unravel in the English sources, but there are a few things that have come out over the years, and I think it would be just kind of interesting to look at some of the developments that took place in that arcade genre over the course of a couple of decades. And we always like beating things up mindlessly. So we will cover beat-em-up games next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.